Welcome to another episode of the Being and Doing podcast, uh, where I try to create space dedicated to unique minds that are all around us and hopefully brings a series of stories that will hopefully challenge, inspire and stimulate your being. And today I'm joined by Frank Norman. Uh, and I think it's an interesting topic we are going to bring here and we are going to, to talk about um, librarians in this day and age and the keepers of knowledge and what is it that modern day librarians are facing as a challenge while trying to collect and gather knowledge so welcome frank thank you okay uh so i'm curious just to hear something about you uh so who you are and um also knowing that you're recently going to retire what has been your life mission <laughs> My life mission, uh, I guess, just to survive. But yeah, so I'm <laughs> Frank Norman. I'm currently head of library services at the Francis Crick Institute. I've been working in libraries in the biomedical area for, um, I, th I think, about 40 years now. <laughs> um, I'm also a gay man. Uh, coming out relatively late in life. So that had its own challenges. And we'll talk a bit about that. Mm. Um, I, uh, in other parts of life, I, I enjoy running. I'm very slow now with my knees, uh, but I also uh, sing in choirs. I have done oh. that for a very long time. And uh, I've had a lot of amazing experiences singing in all kinds of different venues and all kinds of different music. And from wow. the proms, the proms to Glastonbury, I think the the two extreme ends. That is incredible. I'm now even more curious, and I'm thinking this conversation is not going to be only about being a librarian. So that's beautiful. So um, maybe uh, let's talk about um, what does it entail to be a librarian in biomedical scientists sciences. Um, what does it entail? Well. Um, I was just say something broadly about libraries. A librarian, we, we work in various different sectors. So typically we think of three areas of libraries. There's public libraries, which have a, a more of a, a social element to them and they're you know, very wide ranging. There are academic libraries serving students and researchers in, in universities, educational establishments. Uh, and then there are workplace libraries serving people working in a particular organization and the crick as a research institute we're not quite academic and we're more workplace but we've we've got some aspects of academic libraries so a research institute libraries a librarian is, is something a little bit in between various sorts but the key thing is as a librarian of research institute I know who my audience is. It's a well-defined audience, mm -hmm. uh, and so I can I can get to know what they need um, very well. So the, these different sorts of librarians w uh, have different approaches and goals, but we share some things. So um, I think number one, maybe the thing you first think of is organizing and categorizing information resources. So all libraries will do something of that, and. We also need to understand the whole system by which information and knowledge is produced and published. So you know, we, we work a lot with publishers. Uh, and 
uh, assessing information resources to some extent, because you know, we have information resources typically cost money or resource, mm. and we have to decide where to where to spend that. So we have to make choices between different resources. So we have to assess or um, or ask our users to help us assess things. Um, so that was number one. Number two is understanding users' needs and and satisfying those needs. And uh, you know, I think that word satisfying, you know, we get often a lot of the satisfaction of the job is um, it comes through the satisfaction of users' requests, helping them to get what they need to know. Um, and thirdly, um, searching for information uh, used to be through you know, looking through printed indexes. Now more and more it's, it involves IT. Well, almost always almost it involves more. IT. Uh, so searching and somebody described a librarian as... Um, uh, I've, I've forgotten the phrase now, but it, it had the, something about the terrier uh, and information being an information terrier. We don't rest until we've found the answer, which can be a problem because you, sometimes you, there isn't a, an answer and you have to give up. But we, we typically we want to keep going until we've found uh, at least an answer. Mm. Um, so those are the three things that I think all libraries will share to some degree. And, and more and more, uh, all libraries all library work involves tech skills um, mm -hmm. and um, coming to the end of my career yeah I can see th th there's big gaps in my tech skills um, mm. so and I can see that having somebody come in to replace me they will have a, a whole lot more uh, a, a much higher level of skill than I than I have mm. in those areas and so what do you think was the creative part of your job? Uh, because there are so many aspects of what you're doing. And where do you feel was your creative expression within, within what you were doing? Um, well, the, there's always um, no, uh, material to be written. So writing mm -hmm. uh, reports from various things, you know, business proposals or writing um, information about some of the new products that we services that we offer to to mm -hmm. market them to people. So that's that's more creative. Um, um, and I think curating. So mm -hmm. for instance, we have a historical book collection and we put on little exhibitions of small selections of books. So that aspect always feels creative to me that we, you, know, you select a few items from the collection which you think make a coherent whole and uh, and are interesting to to users, and we'll we'll do some curation, describe each object, each book or item. Uh, so that sort of curatorial aspect is uh, is very creative and rewarding. Yeah, I, I must say that actually it's one of my favorite parts. I always like to mm -hmm. take the small booklets. And okay. almost as a almost as a kind of uh, uh, a refresher of things that I would like to mm. or topics I might have not thought about mm. but have been written about. So thank you yeah. for doing that. I have to okay. say, uh, yeah, and I, I'm I, sorry. I, I always enjoy when we can make connection. You know, I think the the thing that in my head that made me a librarian is is something about matching up patterns and making connections so i always enjoy being able to make connections perhaps between unexpected things or things which are less well known and highlighting the connections of of this obscure item with something more more well known mm, i mean now that you're describing it actually a librarian sounds very much like a scientist 
perhaps well i think on the pattern matching seeing patterns between uh, phenomena i guess is is similar yeah and uh you just now briefly touched about what brought you into this um into this yeah. uh, um work but what was actually initially that brought you into being a librarian what was the appeal uh, was it books was it the organizational part or a bit of both well uh I, i'm one of the rare people that found the careers advisor at my school was useful okay. um, <laughs> i know they they come in for a lot of slack but uh, at school, you know, you're, you're pressured into saying, what are you going to do with your life? What's your career? Uh, so I, I had no idea whatsoever. The careers advisor, does, they get you to do an aptitude test. And somehow in that, you know, categorizing and organizing, classifying seemed to come out, I uh, seemed to come out stronger in that area. I'd never thought about working in libraries or information science, but um, they suggested that. And I thought, yeah, sounds all right. So. Uh, no, problem solved. I don't have to worry what's my career going to be. That's what I'm going to do. So I, uh, I made that decision. I went, I worked in a public library headquarters for a year after school before going to university. And then I, I did a chemistry degree. Um, and after that, went on to do a one year postgraduate diploma in librarianship. So I was all, all set you know, with my, my science background and my library qualification uh, and a little bit of experience. Uh, and I then worked in a pharmaceutical company library for, for six years. That was quite a long time for a first job, but it was a very good grounding in all kinds of areas. Um, um, with a little bit of library automation. So that was just the library automation was kind of really starting to get going. So I had a little exposure to, to IT then. Um, uh, I'll continue with the my yeah. my pre-prepared stuff so th yes. then i i i thought i have to get out of this or i'll be here for the rest of my life i need to mm -hmm. switch jobs and i uh, got a post in a hospital library running a hospital library in saudi arabia which was um you know, in in some ways much more like a regular library but in other ways obviously in a, a very different mm -hmm. environment but that gave me a lot more exposure to uh, pcs ibm pcs in the 80s were were you know, all the rage. Um, so mm -hmm. I had a lot more work with, with PCs and uh, did a lot more online searching. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so my tech skills there increased considerably. After three years, I'd had enough of that and uh, came back to the UK and got a, a job as a deputy librarian at NIMR Mill Hill. So that was a mm -hmm. research institute in North London. Um, so that was, and I was, deputy librarian for 10 years up to 1999 um, and that that was a, a a wonderful time to be there because it, i was in a, a leading biological institute and uh, with lots of, of brilliant people doing lots and lots of molecular biology so they really were interested in all of the gene sequence information and this with the human genome project and all of the the sequencing work going on this was also at the time that the internet started coming to the fore in the early 90s. Uh, so I, I delved into um, exploring information on the internet and helping people to find biological information through that route. So I did a lot of evangelizing about the internet mm. um, and getting into the web and setting up websites and uh, uh, set up a, a project to help people find information. 
as well. Ten years later, my, my boss retired and I moved up to become head of the library. So that was 1999 to 2015. Um, so dealing with e-journals, all of our print journals migrated into electronic uh, versions and we, we slowly moved into subscribing to all of those. Mm. Uh, um, I also did a lot of work with the NIMR website, managing that, uh, and kind of started branching out. So the annual report of the Institute came my way to, to organize that. Uh, Middle Hill Essays, an annual booklet of um, essays about science for the general public. So uh, moving away from just librarianship to more um, writing and editing and writing research news items. Uh, mm. Also, uh, I gained responsibility for the NIMR archives, historical archives and history, historical collections. So you know, having been the, you know, the vanguard of the new, the internet, the electronic information, I was also now having to learn about the, the past and uh, uh, old printed materials. So while you're talking about this, I just feel like a lot of richness within one life. On one hand, you have a lot of rich cultural experience being exposed to different working cultures and then also um, cultures as in you live, worked in Saudi Arabia. But then also what is impressive for me is that your, your life has been a series of very fast, very intense changes. And I'm curious uh, what helped you to, to kind of keep the curiosity and not be afraid of changing yourself? Yeah, I, um, it's curious hearing someone else describe your life in a way you hadn't thought about. Uh, I've never really planned anything. Uh, I just, I've just moved along, um, seen an opportunity sometimes been successful in getting them sometimes not but where I, where i've been able to take advantage of that opportunity i've moved into that and then explored um so it hasn't felt uh, i'm not a big risk taker so i've i've always sort of have you know make sure that i can see see the next handhold before i move you know, the next position so i I, I, I don't take great leaps of faith so i, I guess i move very steadily um uh, rather than um, no, uh, uh, moving into areas of great uncertainty, I, I sort of I see what's there, and I also you know, learning from others, seeing that someone else has done this in a slightly different environment, I can adapt that and and do that in in this environment. So um, I think just plodding on, but um, be, being open to new experiences or new. Uh, uh, new opportunities. And uh, I'm now wondering uh, what would have been some challenges that you have experienced in, in this path? Um, and what do you think is, is a challenge of working in academic librarianship? Um, I think one of the challenges is uh, well, well, a, a couple of things. One is that librarians, uh, we, we don't have a very high status often. So we're in a university, perhaps it's a bit different. They're, they're running much bigger organizations, but um, libraries tend to be not always the priority strategically for an organization. Um, 
when I look around colleagues in other organizations, um, quite quite a few of them have been made redundant. They've closed down the library or they've reduced it to a, a, a much smaller um, uh, unit. So I think uh, status is, is a continual problem for, for librarians. Um, we can see that what we do is important, but it's it's often hard to um, to see how it adds to the bottom line. I think in a in a research environment, it's perhaps clearer. But uh, the another challenge is, um, you know, the 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 move from print to, to digital, mm -hmm. and from digital to to online. Uh, there there is a thought amongst some that. Uh, Everything's just out there on on the internet, and if you Google, you'll you'll find everything you need. You you'll certainly find a lot, but you won't find everything. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, particularly there's a lot of material which hasn't been digitized, you know, part, historical material. So it, there's a sort of a sense that if it, if it's not online, it doesn't exist. So anything before 1990 uh, may not exist, although some older material is digitized. Uh, so that sort of sense that um, what we do is, is no longer required or that we've been superseded. Uh, and of course, comparing with um, you know, the start of my career, the, the work that I did then, much of that you know, just doesn't, doesn't get done now. So much of what I was doing earlier or even 20 years ago is, is no longer required, but there's, there's always new, new challenges, new. Uh, I, I think of librarians as kind of, we, we help information to be frictionless. So we, where there's a, there's a bottleneck, uh, mm -hmm. we'll help. It used to be that searching for information was a bottleneck and, and our skills help people to find the information they wanted. Now that's almost, uh, been removed as a bottleneck everyone can can search very easily uh, and new bottlenecks are around how we publish information and there's a lot of complexity in some of the uh, aspects of that open access and so we're, we're moving into that area I think research data is probably another um, uh, another bottleneck which we we can help with Mm -hmm. So I will then actually jump into this topic and come back to some of the other uh, more general mm -hmm. questions later. So that is one of the reasons I actually approached you um, because, because of my interest in open access science and uh, what are the impediments to having that. And uh, basically, maybe let's outline the problem and then we can go into the nitty gritty details of, of what, what's, what's maybe a possible solution. Okay, so I actually did a talk on uh, on open science recently, so I'm going to re recycle some of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had a slide titled Transforming Research. So going back to the, uh, the 1990s, as we talked about the internet coming along, and it began to transform scientific research, making communication and data exchange and publishing um, or changing all of those areas. And the Human Genome Project was, was an early example of what could happen when you combine scientific data, informatics and the internet. Uh, and th th those things coming together massively accelerated molecular biology research so that one of our researches in Mill Hill uh, so, so if someone in California published uh, a new gene sequence and and the function of that of that gene, you know, the, 
the very same day our researcher in Mill Hill could could download that sequence, could um, could work with that and apply that to their own research. So, you know, th that that instant availability of information uh, globally uh, transformed how biology worked. Uh, another in another area, physics, physicists were used to. Uh, sending around paper preprints of their work. Physicists tended to work in very large research groups uh, and they were used to sending around copies of their papers ahead of being published, so before they'd even been through peer review. And physicists were also early adopters of, of, of IT and the internet. Uh, and so that came to the point where they they, they had their their new paper available on their computer. They print it out and then send it to their colleagues. And then they thought, hold on, we can just email it. And even better, we could just stick it on a web server somewhere and anybody can access it. And so what's called the archive, A-R-X-I-V, the physics archive was born. That's a huge website where all uh, high energy physicists and gradually more and more areas of physics uh, posted their, their latest research papers ahead of getting into the journals. And these were called preprints. And again, that massively accelerated uh, how physics research worked. Other subjects didn't adopt that um, immediately, but uh, preprints have now spread to, to all areas of, of research. So, so we came to understand that, um, that sharing is good for science. You know, the internet made very fast sharing of information very easy um, and the one big research funder in the states the national institutes for health uh, they they say that uh, sharing of data maximizes availability of data for other researchers and leads to better use of data and transparency um, of scientific data which helps to ensure public trust and accountability um, so we've seen technology and research funders and publishers all have a part to play, but also research culture. Uh, mm -hmm. Different, I said that biology and physics um, adopted different ways of sharing information um, at different times. So different research cultures will uh, have different approaches to what and when they're prepared to share. Um, uh, so I'm lucky just working in a, a biomedical library, uh, institute library, uh, I only really have to deal with with, with biologists and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, some medicine. Uh, I, I feel sorry for my colleagues in multi-faculty universities when they've got such a wide range of, of, uh, uh, of disciplines and, and approaches to data sharing and open access. Um, one of the issues is that sharing it does take a little bit of time so in order to share something you have to make sure that it's ready to be shared and you have to post it and do do various things so it sort of seems to a, a busy researcher with lots and lots of uh, uh, of other um calls on their time and and demands on uh you know, doing things in a particular way like legislative or um uh, other other requirements. Open access and data sharing can seem like a, just another chore that they're being told they have to spend time on. So uh, this is where 
libraries and and other agencies in the organization can our role is to try to make it as easy as possible that's what we mm -hmm. always try to do we we're aware that that uh that, you know, openness can seem like a um just you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back something more that researcher has to do so we we try to take as much burden off researchers as possible mm -hmm. um moving on to open access so that's the idea that your research paper when it's fully published and peer reviewed um, should be made open for everybody to use um, currently well uh, uh, our funders have policies that require all crit researchers to, to make their research papers open in some way um, now we depend to some extent we can't do this independently the the papers are published in scientific journals and the publishers of those journals uh, very often they make a lot of money out of of publishing research and then selling the the journals onto the readership so there's huge amounts of money in publishing uh, and some researchers well nearly all researchers i should say feel that Publish, scientific publishing is a bit of a ripoff. The mm -hmm. scientist writes the paper, other scientists will peer review the paper, uh, and the journal, the publisher obviously does a lot of valuable work as well, but the, the, they then send, sell the access back to the, the scientist. So it seems that we're putting a lot, you know, the academic community puts a lot of input into journals, but also has to spend a huge amount of money uh, on scientific journals and so that the feeling that this isn't really working well for academia and the research community uh, has led to more and more emphasis on on open access but we're we're in a bit of a battle with with publishers sometimes some publishers uh you know make, make it very easy other publishers seem to keep putting blocks in the way or they they require more money to be paid to them to make material open access. So um, <clears throat> uh, the, it, we're still um, having to do a lot of work to, to, to make papers open for everybody to read and to reuse. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I should say it's not just about open to read, but also to reuse. One of the things we learned from the Human Genome Project was having all of these gene sequences available and protein sequences and all of the other biological data available openly for anyone to download. It was possible then to manipulate those to say to, to get uh, you know, assemble an, a number of different gene sequences and uh, cr create new knowledge for by combining those and and using uh, tools to to work with them, and so the one of the drivers for open access is actually uh, to enable uh, modern uh, technologies. So soft, uh, sorry, um, text and data mining mm -hmm. tools to to work with the scientific literature. We can do that with with scientific data, but not with the literature unless it's. Mm -hmm. uh, open access it's open with a with a license to reuse mm -hmm. um i'm skimming over the details mm -hmm. here uh but 
so, I mean, there, I would like to just quickly stop mm -hmm. you and ask you a question. Sure. So basically, I think uh, the public is maybe not aware that we are funded by public money and mm -hmm. that this money is then used to pay a privately funded company that then they have to again pay <laughs> in order to mm. be able to access mm. the science that they have already paid. So uh, what I'm curious about that we we both maybe might agree or not, but there is a support that the, the journals are offering scientists. But I think it, uh, it really is sometimes more of an imp impediment when we talk about all these things because mm. we do prepare the paper we even do the digital editing we do the we do the um, the creative part and then as you said we can't access our own papers <laughs> yeah so uh i'm wondering there is you said that there are many that there are many barriers which are created by by the publishers and i'm wondering what are those and what makes it so difficult to have the co the two channel communication where we are actually can work together rather than kind of having a clash. Um, the, the, the fundamental thing is, uh, is the profit motive. Um, sometimes being too high up the list of priorities. Um, one of the early open access advocates, Stephen Harnad, he was a Canadian um, psychologist, but he, he worked in the UK for a long time. And he, he wrote millions of words about open access in the early 90s. I've read a small fraction of them. Um, but he, he described research literature as the giveaway literature. Um, he said, academics want people to read their work. They don't write research papers to make money, but to share knowledge. So that's quite different from you know, traditional book publishing, where you know, an author you know, writes a novel uh, and they want to sell copies of that. They want to get royalties. They want to earn money from their writing. Mm -hmm. But academics, their, their, their business is generating knowledge and sharing knowledge. Uh, and they're, they're paid from the, as you said, from the public purse or other funders to do that. They're, they're not looking to earn money from their research papers. They want people to read it. Now, publishers, they they can they add value by arranging peer review to um, uh, to you know, to arrange for other academics to go through and double check um, that they they think the research is credible. Uh, although that's another long conversation about the value of peer review. Uh, and edit, uh, publishers also have editorial staff and, and some of them, they, they do a lot of uh, copy editing and formatting and, and they produce lovely images mm -hmm. um, as well. So, but it varies between publishers. So publishers have, you know, do add value, but uh, where what happened was Publishing used to be mostly from learned societies, so something like the Society of Microbiology in the UK or the um, American Association of Immunologists have, have been in the business of publishing journals for a long time, so that they, they published research for the benefit of their communities uh, and they, they charge modest amounts for the, for the journals. Um, 
and there, there were commercial publishers that in the 1970s, Robert Maxwell, who um, some of your listeners may remember, he, he famously uh, fell off his yacht in, in 1991, I think it was, and, and drowned. He was, the, he was a big media magnate, he owned a number of newspapers, but he also had a big publishing empire. And he'd, in the 70s, he'd seen that scientific publishing was uh, a way to make easy money. He, he set up lots of new journals. He had for very low quality standards, just, um, but he, he, he made huge amounts of money from scientific publishing. And that really was the, uh, I think one of the, the start of the, of the downfall of, uh, if we can put it that way, of scientific publishing, the, mm-hmm. the, the road into in, where profit became more and more important. And now we have um, four or five major scientific publishing houses making you know, 30 to 40% profit on turnover. And between them, you know, they, they control 50, 60% of all scientific publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have learned society publishers and many of those are putting out very very well thought of journals at a much lower cost than the uh, the big commercial houses so i i am afraid um it's it's that profit motive and mm-hmm. the, the the needs of shareholders coming ahead of the needs of academia and there is one thing here i still want, i also want to ask which is my impression from the other side is how that impacts the science itself and how it changes the incentives um and so changes the incentive was almost like the big journals being in search for mm-hmm. flashy titles which doesn't do not often actually come come as true um and so therefore i'm wondering what do you think is a way of the scientists getting back the power into their own hands and and kind of finding a way to 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 work around this in a way this is a massive question um, <laughs> uh, people sometimes think you know that the problems of of science publishing is all the fault of librarians because you know, we're paying all this money to the publishers we support the publishers by by subscribing but of course it's the it's the researchers who choose to publish their work in some of these very expensive journals uh, perhaps we should just say a little bit about the, the highly the the concept of the highly selective journal yes yes um, that there's there's a, a trio of journals cell nature and science or cns in biological sciences um and those three are seen as the kind of the you know the the top level of 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 journal they are all highly selective so nature rejects about 95 percent of manuscripts submitted to it and i think science the same I'm not sure about cell mm-hmm. so the they they're not just aiming to publish any good science. They're aiming to um, to create a, a, an issue which has got really um, fascinating, high impact, um, and dare one say trendy research papers. Uh, so they they have professional editors. They have academic peer reviewers, but the editor of the journals they are full time working on 
editing the journal. So the professional editors will uh, receive a manuscript and they may, they'll read it and may discuss it with colleagues, uh, but they, they can reject the manuscript uh, without sending it out to peer reviewers. So they, mm. if they decide that, you know, what, someone I know who's a, a, a nature editor, he said, the question he asked himself is, after he's read this paper, how has the world changed? Has the world changed through mm. the, the new knowledge in that paper? And if the world hasn't changed, he rejects it. So they have a very high standard on you know, the, the impact that paper makes. Um, <clears throat> and it, it can be that if you're in a, an area of science which isn't so exciting, may not get headlines in the newspaper, uh, I think um, uh, the people working in, in biological systematics, you know, um, yeah. what, I can't remember the name of the discipline, but um, working with new species, mm -hmm. uh, categorizing new species, those, they find it very difficult to publish in the, in the higher impact journals. So there are, there are disciplines, and I think infectious disease people, maybe this has changed now with COVID, but infectious disease people tended to find it hard to get into the highest impact journals. So there are areas of science which you just don't find in those, um, what they call glamour mags. Uh, I like that term. Um, I've, I've said there's three of them, but actually the, each of those three, they've kind of got a little empire of of slightly lower level journals, but still with the same business model of, of professional editors and looking for high impact research. So um, now the incentive to publish in these journals, it's because they, they have high readership. So your work will be read by large numbers of people, but also there is the perception that if you published in one of these high level journals or, or highly selective journals that your research is is a cut above the average. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is an interesting question: is you know, to what extent does by being published in in a, a, a high reputation journal does that reputation reflect onto your paper? How does that that get translated onto your paper? How does your paper assume mm -hmm. the characteristics of that journal? Uh, yeah. um, some people feel that um, that the papers published in those highly selective journals shouldn't be regarded any more highly than papers published in other journals. But um, the fact is that if if you're if you're given a list of papers to to review, if you're if you're trying to evaluate a research scientist and you see a list of their papers, you know, twenty papers, you can read through all twenty papers and form your view. But more likely than not, you're going to have a look at the, the journals where they published and form a view based on how many uh, uh, um, highly selective journals they've published in. Mm -hmm. uh, th there is a, a strong move against this that started, I can't remember, 10 years ago, uh, the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment, or DORA, D-O-R-A. Mm -hmm. They said that research assessment should not be based on the, the the brand or the journal where the research is published, but on the quality of the research itself. And more and more funders and organizations have signed up to DORA, but in practice, 
it, again, it comes down to the researchers who are uh, making these assessments. All of the you know, the research funders they don't decide themselves. They they uh, invite uh, you know, um, active research staff to yeah. to help them to make decisions about when they're assessing uh, other researchers for for funding purposes. Mm -hmm. um, so. It, it, the power is all in the hands of the researchers, but they don't feel like it is. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we like to blame publishers or funders for not doing the right thing, but at the end of the day, it's the researchers themselves who, who have the power to make changes. But I think it, the, one other aspect we haven't really touched on is um, that research is a global enterprise. So, you know, for researchers in the Crick, their their closest competitors may be in Australia, Japan, Germany, and and California. Um, so it, it's you know they're they're working to 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 beat their competitors to um, interesting discoveries, um, and th they will be reading research results from all over the world uh, in the same way that. Uh, research in those countries will be reading quick researchers' results. So, it's a massive global enterprise, and it's it's moving on all the time. Papers coming in and getting published all the time. So, trying to make a big change in research culture to say, you know, after this day we're going to change it and do it this way, it's just really impossible. Uh, uh, maybe we need a a massive team of of uh, of change managers to figure out how we can make these changes, but um, it's very hard to to turn this ship around to a, a more equitable uh, way of publishing. Um, and and there I also had one more question, which is for me always very interesting when when people allow themselves to say, "Oh, I'm going to look at this paper and think whether it's changing the world." Mm. And I'm I'm always thinking that um, Nature Science they are published I think every two weeks or something like this every, every that, week yeah. or every week yeah, and then I'm thinking and they probably have like 10, 20 papers or research articles that are published mm. and I'm thinking is it possible that actually twenty research articles in two weeks are all changing the world and uh and then every two weeks there's another 20 that they're changing the world and also it's just kind of what happens to me when i think about these things is just this idea that science work as a one moment in time enterprise mm. that suddenly now we have changed the world and we kind of disregard all the past small steps we have made to actually come to this one big life-changing event so i'm just wondering uh how can we at least work on that part of the culture when we are talking about science as a small incremental improvements that eventually will lead to something that might change the world but it's not uh, it's it's just like a kind of a precipitation of many small events and i feel like that mm. we we forget how science work often when we make statements like that yeah well that's a very interesting comment um you know, through you know, having having been a bit more exposed to science history and reading a little little bit about um, for, for, of what science historians write, and th there's a there's a 
a discipline called STS or science and technology studies, which encompasses history of science, philosophy of science and all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. And they're looking at about really studying how science works. Scientists tend to be you're in the thick of it, you're doing the science, and it's sometimes hard to look to stand outside and see how does science work. So STS is an interesting discipline of of non-scientists studying how science works. And uh, historians um, uh, are very critical of what they call a Whiggish view of history. I don't know if you've come across that term. No, no. It, it, was, it was new to me. Um, and that's the, the, the idea that, you know, uh, and it's sort of encouraged by the, 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 the culture of awards and prizes, but the idea that a figure, normally a white male figure, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, takes all the credit for a particular uh, advance, whereas in fact, as you say, there's, there's. You know, uh, I think Newton said, if he's seen further, it's because he stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes. You know that uh, uh, any any breakthrough is a result of a whole series of of smaller breakthroughs leading up to that. Um, obviously, you know that. No, there, there is, there are people with with additional insight, you know, a cut above everyone else, who who sees things that uh, the other people haven't seen with the same evidence in front of them. But uh, the idea that um, you know there are there are sudden breakthroughs uh, achieved by individuals is is a, an incorrect view of science. That um, mm. is, uh, and and today ever more so that when we see research papers with with tens or hundreds of, of papers we know that team science is is a very big thing you know the human the human genome project was uh, thousands of of biologists contributed to that uh, not all of whom got you know, very much recognition but team science really makes that idea of a single individual achieving something uh, uh, no, uh, visible Mm. Um, so I think maybe we need to learn a little bit from historians, from from the humanities, to understand better about how science works. But um, scientists are not always don't always welcome uh, observations from outside of science. Mm. Uh, Bruno Latour, the French sociologist, famously published his book Lab Life um, many years ago, decades ago, and. Uh, and that that had a huge backlash hmm. I think, from scientists yeah i can imagine but i mean for me as again being trained in a in a school where actually we have been kind of studying the philosophy of science hmm. also being a scientist it has always been very beneficial i think uh, you had in your small um uh, in your small booklet there was uh, hmm. the um, uh, history, no, uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. I think it's yes, yeah, um, yeah. And and I think these are yeah for me. And and actually, there was a really wonderful essay which I now completely uh, forgot the the author, but also an essay about um, uh, what we the downsides of science and the scientific method and what we don't see. And I will put it in the show notes mm. actually. And mm. so, so I do agree. Uh, I, and I feel like uh, what we are lacking in the moment is, is having this in development of scientists. So mm. having more discussions in, about, well, how do we do science and what are the biases, not only the unconscious bias about 
being a female, male, or uh, anything, or mm. queer. But for example, the unconscious bias of actually, what am I? What is my unconscious bias as a scientist, mm. and what do I assume as a scientist, which I completely am uh, unaware of? So I'm mm. wondering. Uh, what you have seen being involved in science, but kind of sitting slightly on the edge, that is something that we as scientists maybe are not aware of. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can think of anything there. I, I'm probably not close enough to, to the science to uh, have any meaningful insights there. Um, uh yeah that's a tough one uh, so maybe what i can also relate to because you were we, we were just talking about uh the the Whiggish history and mm. one of the questions i also asked uh is what is success because mm. because this kind of relates to the to the whole story of how we praise and prize people and so what do you think would then be a scientific success and how would how could we also look at scientific success not only through a, through a lens of a Nobel Prize or something like that? Um, uh, yeah, this is also challenging. The, the people who make the decisions about what is success are, are the people who have achieved success themselves under the existing system so uh trying to get that change is very hard um i'm for for a long time there's been a, a push from research funders to for researchers to uh, and undertake public engagement work to you know to 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 spread um public knowledge of science and to and to talk with the Lay, lay people about their scientific research and and take on board views from uh, from lay people. Uh, uh, so funders say you should do this, but when they're evaluating researchers you know, with a view to giving them additional funding, I'm fairly sure that uh, a, a big program of of public engagement work um, won't won't sway the decision unless Definitely. there's also a very strong publication record uh so i think you know you if you can be a, a fabulous public engagement and person uh, but if, if you're not publishing very strongly as well you won't get further research funding so uh, um there's a lot of lip service paid to things like you know edi work and and work um you know, mentoring work and bringing on you new science leaders through training uh, uh, PhD students and postdocs. But uh, I, I just don't see that's going to change that, that we're not going to, we're not going to reward people unless they've also got fantastic research record. Mm. Uh, I, I'm a bit skeptical about that. But maybe it's not even about rewarding, maybe it's just about appreciating. Well, yeah, recognizing there's in terms of open access, um, again, you don't get any any, any prizes for for open access, um, you know, making all of your work open and sharing your data openly. But there are uh, 
um, there are schemes to have little badges. So if you, if because you know, sharing data and publishing open access, uh, it's all in the digital space. So there, there's data about it, and that can be you know, um, aggregated and and turned into some new product. So there is the idea of of, of putting uh, open badges on. Uh, attaching open badges to say to somebody's um, orchid profile you know, mm -hmm. um, so that idea of, of, of recognizing you know, achievements through you know, non-research achievements through badges digital badges is perhaps a, another way mm -hmm. um, but uh, whether that's that's enough I don't know and how about like how about affecting the culture or at least having something that will hopefully hmm. uh i mean over a long period of time still somehow bring about these discussions and therefore affect maybe the culture in in also pis or even among ourselves p as among peers being hmm. being okay with well, let, let's let's have an appreciation of, of the effort that every one of us is doing into making science more open. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, you know, the CRIC has its own internal awards scheme. And you know, there they do, they have a number of different categories. They have a category for you know, most impressive research, but they also have categories for, um, uh, you know, the person who's or the team who's been most helpful to advancing research and yeah. so uh, this year the um the, the cleaning team yes. i think won that award so yes uh, that that sort of initiative and you know, creating awards for different categories of of input to research i know um Otterlin Liza, who's the head of ukri she she did a very interesting talk um last year where she she highlighted all the different roles you know, in, including librarians and archivists but uh, you know, research administrators all sorts of different roles that go into um, um, you know, creating great research so uh, she's very keen to again to reward or to to recognize all the different contributions mm -hmm. to science uh, and something like the the technician commitment I know that again the CRIC is signed up to recognizing the role not just of the of the research leaders but all, all yeah. people doing all of the um uh you know the practical work in the laboratory that contributes they don't get the glory but uh, the, there's an increasing recognition that they are you know, without them the research wouldn't happen so we have to make sure that we we recognize them too and uh, mm. and give them uh, rewards too so uh I remember slightly different tech, but maybe kind of national and international awards should have more categories. I think the Royal Society they have an award for um, uh, for public engagement as well. I know somebody mm -hmm. actually a, a fellow librarian, um, ex biologist who who got that award last year or the year before. Um, so I guess we we maybe we need to get the Nobel Committee to institute some. No, uh, I'm not going to say lower level, but to, to recognize the different dimensions of scientific achievement and input. Um, the the Lasker Prize, which is another very prestigious prize, I, I remember, I think that went one year to um, Bruce Alberts, 
who was a, a molecular biologist, and in 1983, he published the book Molecular Biology of the Cell, which was one of the seminal, you know, everybody had that book. Uh, so his prize, it, it wasn't just for that book, but I'm sure that you know, the, the, the importance of that book in, in biology uh, uh, made him a candidate for that prize, along with his, his research, you know, because it, it had a massive impact across the world on um, um, spreading a knowledge about this new tool of molecular biology. And so I would just briefly come back to the open science and the power being in the in the mm. hands of researchers and uh, wondering um, what how do you think that we can reclaim that power and what kind of conversations need to be held in order for us for us to be more aware that we are actually the ones who are making those decisions to publish and where to publish and we are the ones who are making those decisions to peer review for free or to to do mm. many things for free and how can we actually exercise our power without being and this is something that i always seem being have in mind without actually being ostracized from the community mm. and still having access to sharing uh, and being taken seriously for the expertise we have yeah um so i'll start out by saying as a librarian, I'm always very tentative about giving advice to researchers and what they should do. That you know, it's it, it's not my life that's going, my career that's going to be affected. Oh, yeah. So um, I I sort of generally draw back from that. However, um, <clears throat> it's uh, I'm interested. You use the word community. That uh, I think. Uh, changes will probably happen in smaller communities, not across science as a whole mm. or biology as a whole, but smaller communities. So, um, for instance, Tim Gowers, the Cambridge mathematician, um, uh, he he affected change by uh, um, I, I can't remember that, that but there was a, a mathematical journal. I can't remember whether he started a new journal or he he mm -hmm. took a journal to to open access that was previously uh, a commercial journal, but so he 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 was very influential. He's written again a lot of very influential pieces about open access in mathematics, and in ten years ago he kind of spearheaded a, a massive um, anti-commercial publisher backlash. Uh, but so in mathematics in his field you know, he, he's he's affected change by making that journal open access there was in linguistics there was a famous uh, case where a journal of the commercial publisher the whole editorial board uh, resigned from the journal and they set up a new journal with a, a different name but it, exactly the same subject area a new open access journal so that sort of limited thing within a field if if people are agreed to, to take action they can do it so mm -hmm. seeing more journals flip and i think it's interesting uh, we haven't really talked about plan s and the changes recently in in uh, open access rules from the funders but the, there have been a lot of changes in the last 18 months and i think this is going to lead to more journals um, from commercial publishers flipping to open access models mm -hmm. and i think when that's when we've got a certain level of uh, of open access journals uh, you know say if 25 percent of 
or the big publishers, journals, flip to open access, that'll be a lot more open access. And it may be that uh, editorial boards will be more, you know, feel, feel safer to, to you know, do something similar, something radical like all resigning en masse and, and starting a new open access journal or insisting to the publisher that they want this journal to become open access. So I think we may see more um, radical action from editorial boards and editors, um, but it, it's probably going to be within small areas rather than systemic, system-wide. Um, we're seeing also another big thing I think researchers can do is to post preprints. I mentioned the physics uh, physicist back in 30 years ago showing us the way, well, it it was only 10 years ago that biologists really started um, posting preprints on a, a new server called BioArchive. Uh, and we have MetaArchive and ChemArchive now. So in, in, the, in our space, there's, uh, there's a number of, of great preprint servers where you can post your, your work as soon as you finish the paper and submitted it to the journal, post it as a preprint so everybody can read the unreviewed um, research. Um, so I think that that's something in the power of researchers. More and more researchers are doing it, but still only sort of eight to ten percent of all biomedical research is posted as a preprint. So we've got a long way to go. Mm. Uh, but I think that um, creates a bit of grit in the oyster, you know, a bit of so an accelerant to change. Mm -hmm. um, so that if if you can't get access to the peer-reviewed final version of the paper, you can still access the preprint, and that may motivate publishers to you know, to accept that they have to make some changes in their models. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm also curious, you mentioned, uh, did you say plan S? Because it's something mm. uh, I haven't heard of, so I'm curious. Okay, well, in 2016, the European Union, uh, um, I think it was, Yes, the European Union um, signalled its intent to to move more strongly to open access. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to bore you with some details about what open access is. But yes, I talked earlier about open access. It means free to read and free to reuse. Um, and the the original definition um, in um, Budapest in 2001, uh, there was a a meeting of people decided you know, on some definitions for open access. So it's free to read, free to reuse, and immediately open access. Uh, open access until now, um, in practice, uh, there are papers that are immediately free to read and to reuse, but there's also a lot of papers that are maybe free to read, but only after six months, mm -hmm. uh, or free to read um but not to reuse so we've had a lot of kind of not not 100 open access it's it fulfills some of the cat some of the criteria but not all of them so in 2016 the eu signaled that it wanted to move more strongly to full open access and in two september 2018 uh, a, a list of european research funders including uh, the Wellcome Trust that fund the CRIC and UKRI that also funds the CRIC. Uh, they produced, they came together something called Coalition S, 
and they published Plan S, which was uh, setting out, you know, really going back to uh, the 2001 declaration from Budapest saying any research that we fund, it must be immediate, it must be open for reuse as well as free to read. And uh, from January last year, um, some funders put this into place. From April this year, other funders have, have, have adopted um, similar rules. And so this is really ramped up the requirements, whereas previously, up until the end of 2020, Crick published about 95% of its research papers in compliance with our funders' open access policies. Um, now we're seeing that slipping. Uh, I think last year it was about 90%, but the, the policies sort of starting to bite more now. So we're we're having to work a lot harder to comply with these policies. And in some cases, the publishers have not adjusted. It, it takes time for all the publishers to um, adjust their policies so that we can publish with them. Uh, so, and because most of the funders in Coalition S, supporting Plan S, are from UK and Europe, uh, there's a couple of US funders too but the, the biggest US funders are not part of this and so mm. some of the American publishers particularly American Learned Society journals uh, we're struggling to uh, achieve compliance with papers in those journals so um, Plan S a lot of people hate it um, it's it's a job creation scheme for librarians because it's massively making life more complicated. So we have to work a lot harder. So we're putting a lot more into open access work at the moment. Um, I think given an another couple of years, um, things will have settled down and we'll be, be working better with it. But some of the changes um, are more challenging for publishers um, and it's not quite clear. So there is a bit of a battle between the funders and the publishers. and the researchers are caught in the middle of that at the moment. So not, I'm not quite clear where that's going. It's not going to be sorted out in, in the immediate future. But um, part of the, the Plan S um, uh, uh, scheme is in effect to, to push more journals to flip to open access. So when I talked about you know, by, by the end of 2024, I'm expecting there will be a lot more open access journals around. That's because of the, the impetus from Plan S. And so also one thing I would like maybe to make people aware is um, what are the expenses of having open access and how actually does that affect uh, equitability of research? Right. Uh, because obviously Crick can pay for those differences, but can every institution pay? And what does that mean for, for having equitable science? Um, yeah, um, even Crick, some of the open access charges for the most selective journals uh, are really very high. So I think um, if you looking at the the, the charges that we pay to make to publish a, an article immediately open access where there's a paid open access option um a thousand dollars would be a relatively cheap one um 
$3,000 is, is quite commonplace. Uh, some uh, up to $5,000 in you know, the, the higher prestige journals. The highest prestige journals now we're paying something like, um, I think, 9,000, nine or 10,000 euros. So if you publish a few papers in some of those high-end journals, you, you, know, you, you, you can buy a, a few cars or a small house for that. Yeah. Um, and I, I am going to report to our senior management uh, in the next, well, uh, next month because I think that increased spending they will want to know about. Um, but as you said, where the Crick is, uh, you know, has got um, a reasonable level of research funding, universities, uh, some of those uh, will struggle more. Um, there are ways to publish that don't in, uh, open access that don't entail paying extra money to the publisher, but uh, some uh, many publishers have set their face against those those free ways to publish. Now, looking more globally uh, outside of the, you know, the the wealthier research countries, um, there's publishers got together some years ago to make. Uh, access to the literature free, so reading access free for people uh, in um, countries with the lowest GDP. So they look at the World Bank list of countries with GP, GDPs below a particular value and uh, access is free for countries on that list. Now, that inevitably creates a, a list of countries that are uh, still relatively poor, but slightly above that level, who don't have access, uh, free access. So that there's still problems there. And that same list is used by many publishers to offer uh, free uh, open access publishing. So they uh, they have what they call a waiver, and they will they will waive the open access charge for uh, researchers in those countries. Um, many researchers feel that it's somehow demeaning to be to be offered charity to publish your work um so and and it's not always clear when the waiver is available some publishers make it clear some don't really make it clear so you have to request it uh, so there's lots of lots of worries about that yeah. um interestingly Paying to publish open access is something which is is commonplace in in Europe and North America, uh, but in some territories in South America, uh, they have a lot of open access journals which are um, so-called diamond open access journals where they're free to read and they're free to publish. So they're supported either through universities or or other agencies. Uh, so there's a there's a, a much bigger um, uh, a much long larger number of people can publish freely in those open access journals than can pay to publish in the um, you know, the global north um, expensive to publish journals. Uh, mm -hmm. I think China too has a, a a very extensive list of of national journals which are free to publish in. So. Um, this is, again, this is a knotty problem. Every year, there's something called Open Access Week, where mm -hmm. the, you know, 
to promote and celebrate open access and they choose a theme each year and the last three years the theme has been on all all around this issue of equity and and inclusiveness yeah. um, and we we don't really have a good solution to that some of the uh, some publishers are, are so there's a, a an open access publisher called plos public library of science they uh, publish mostly in biology um, but they pioneered so uh, up until recently you know, every paper you, you we have published there we paid a fee for but they pioneered some some new models whereby we we subscribe on an annual basis and then can publish unlimited and they've 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 done a lot of modeling work and um uh, sort of so different institutions will pay different amounts depending on the uh, you know their historic uh, publishing patterns and uh, they're looking to encourage um, uh, ways for uh, people outside of the global north to publish freely in their journals and they, they've they've launched some new journals including some on, on climate and and global public health where which are explicitly you know, targeting uh, the, you know, countries outside of the global north where mm -hmm. the ability to pay to publish is is less um, so that that they're you know they're kind of looking past you know, where we are now look, looking into the future thinking we don't want to keep doing things the same way we have been doing so they're mm -hmm. coming up with new schemes i don't know whether they'll be successful long term but i think it's important that we have uh, people thinking of new ways of yeah. of of funding publishing and and so the crick is supporting that and uh, uh, a lot of the uk universities i think are supporting that mm -hmm. there, there's an another thing i wanted to say in terms of uh, you know, innovative publishing initiatives and, and challenging the status quo. We have seen a lot of new sorts of journals uh, coming along. Uh, F1000 Research um, started up and they, they've been copied or they've, they've kind of extended their, their way of publishing to by launching other journals for um, sponsored by some funders. So the, the model of F1000 research is you submit your paper, it's posted as a preprint, so ahead of peer review, it's posted on their website as a preprint, and the journal then invites peer reviewers uh, to openly peer review that, that paper so that their name and their comments are published openly on the website. Uh, and as soon as it gets two positive peer reviews, then that's regarded as published and it gets indexed in uh, in the, the, the regular databases. Um, and that, so the Wellcome Trust uh, liked that pattern and they've established uh, something called Wellcome Open Research, which uses that, that very model and that same platform. Mm -hmm. And any Wellcome Trust funded researcher can publish in Wellcome Open Research without any charge. And a few other funders, of, of, so the European Union and some other medical charities uh, and the uh, African Academy of Sciences um, have established uh, you know, copycats of, of this model. Uh, so that, that's an interesting way that if a funder funds the, the platform for the publishing of research that they've they funded then the the research institution doesn't have to pay anything additional so that's an interesting model i think and another um, more radical model is which is launching at the end of this month something called octopus publishing mm -hmm. and this is 
looking at you know, all, all of the journals that we've talked about so far are are publishing typical articles with a you know, an introduction, literature review, uh, um, a methods section, a, a results section, a discussion section. Um, so Octopus, they've identified eight different sorts of research output. So you might have a, a theory or theoretical approach. You might have you know, uh, some data that you've generated. You'll have some protocols that you've devised and you may have analyses and then discussion. So they're encouraging researchers to publish those, to submit those different sorts of um, research outputs as, as separate items. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that uh, you, you know, perhaps there's there's a theory, some theoretical basis published. You know, five different research groups might think, oh, that's interesting, and and develop some protocols. And then another ten different research groups may use those protocols to to generate data, which all get published. And then the the analysis or the the interpretation may be done by a, somebody different again so i i don't know whether it's going to work i think theoretically you know, it's a very interesting approach and it it it's you know, it's got a you know, it, it may be that um by by offering the possibility of amalgamating different research groups data mm-hmm. before coming up with an interpretation that's just that may give rise to stronger science and conclusions. But um, again, as I was saying, m- making a, a such a radical change in the, in the real world um, yeah. is quite an undertaking. So I just, it, it may be, you know, we, we've taken 10 years in biology for preprints to get to about 10% of the total. So I can see it's going to take a very long time f- uh, for, for this sort of model to, to take hold. Uh, Michael Nielsen, who's commented on on science and publishing extensively, uh, he gave a talk and he said it took 100 years for the the idea of the scientific paper to become firmly established. So we've been working with with preprints and and open access just for 20 or 30 years. So and (laughs) we shouldn't be too disappointed that things haven't changed uh, overnight. Yeah, well, I, I guess these kind of conversations are just something to be had over and over and over again. Yeah. So um, what I would like to do now is just to come back to a little bit of the more personal uh, questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions we discussed um, is uh, when do you think we talked about success? And so what do you think uh, has been your personal success? And when do you think you have actually won over yourself, where you the feeling of success was kind of internal rather than having mm. someone to tell you that something good has happened. Yeah, I think um, so. I'll answer those uh, back to front. So, I think in my in my first library job at the pharmaceutical company, after being there four or five years, um, and I was I started attending external events with other librarians to. Uh, and conferences and that sort of thing and talking to people and and I came to realize that I was actually pretty well informed about current trends in in libraries and publishing and new developments in the field that so I suddenly realized actually I know what I'm talking about Uh, I 
I know more than some of these other people. I, I've, you know, I've, I've pushed myself out from my immediate field of view to to learn about other things and uh, to take note of of developments in adjacent fields. So that I think that's when I first started to think, yeah, I can be a little bit proud of of what I know. I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, but, uh, and I think that's probably when I started applying for other jobs as well, feeling confident to do that. Um, in terms of you know, uh, uh, particular success, well, I guess I felt successful, um, you know, in in getting place at university that I wanted. So that was a, a small success earlier. But in terms of work, I think in 1995, um, I, I applied for funding for a project. So I, I did the project proposal and and assembled a, a team of people in some other institutions. Uh, and this was to develop an internet subject gateway. It seems very old fashioned these days, but back then in, in the 90s, uh, finding information on the internet, this was pre-Google, and finding good quality information um, on, on academic subjects, uh, it, it was a lot harder. And so we, we were funded to um, create, in effect, a library catalog for uh, useful uh, websites on the internet for biology and medicine. Um, and this was another example. There, were, there was an existing project in social sciences that somebody had established. And, and so I just, uh, I talked with them a lot and, and we copied their model, but uh, putting in some of the, uh, <coughs> the expertise that I'd gained by, by playing around with the internet for, for biology. Um, so get, getting that funding awarded, that was, Particularly, I think that's the first time. For yeah, we've we've got the money. We're going to do this this great project, and it that lasted for um, getting on for ten years, uh, which was uh, surprising to me. But uh, I'm curious. Um, you have a career of about forty years, I think you said, mm -hmm. um, and uh, which is kind of coming to an end. Um, how do you feel about the career choices you have made and how do you feel about about your journey now that you can look back and, and what do you feel like what do you feel you can give as an advice to a, any young person that just doesn't know what how to how to discover themselves I think well um, as I said earlier I I've not really done any planning in my career. I've just kind of moved on from one thing to another. Um, <laughs> and, and the last 30 years, I've been very, very lazy. I've, I stayed at, well, I, I was at Mill Hill for 10 years as deputy, then became the head, which, which was quite a different job, mm -hmm. uh, but in the same environment. And then I just transitioned into the Crick when the Crick uh, was created out of mm -hmm. um, the legacy institutes. So. Um, I've I've sort of just stuck with with things and and taken the opportunities that presented themselves. Uh, in terms of, um, I'm going back to success and achievements and rewards. Um, with a chemistry degree, potentially I could have gone into a much more lucrative line of business. Uh, some 
some of the other people working at the pharmaceutical company where I worked, I shared a house with, and they were they were in the chemical production side, so they had chemistry degrees just like me, but um, they were earning, they went on to earn a lot more than I did. Um, but I think I've, I've been content with what I'm doing. I've enjoyed it. Um, I'm not sure that I would have been cut out for, I certainly didn't feel cut out for work in a lab and probably not in the chemical production either. Um, uh, uh, there was a point in the 90s when I thought maybe I should move away from Mill Hill, from NIMR and, and look at other jobs. And I did have a look at some other jobs and I sort of thought, how how can I how can I write a successful persuasive job application for this um, you know, a higher level job much more management um, responsibility and I thought well okay assuming that I did get in called for interview then I've got to go for an interview and and persuade them in person that I can do all of these things and looking ahead further I thought well if I did get the job then I've actually got to do all of those things and I'm not sure I really want to do that so. That thought experiment, uh, no, I, I didn't apply for the, that job. Um, mm. And, uh, and uh, I just felt, actually, I'm comfortable where I am. I enjoy what I'm doing. Uh, I've got the level of stress that I can, that I can manage. Mm. So I'm just going to stay where I am. Unfortunately, we, I did get a lot more stress because of the, the, uh, the transition from NIMR to, to the creek that happened. But um, uh, I... You know, I, I've, I've, I've had a lot of different experiences and, and uh, it, I found it's a fascinating journey. But working with the biologists at the you know, forefront of their fields yeah. has been a privilege too. Um, in terms of advice to younger people starting out, again, I, I think that's very tough because the world is so different. Um, you know, in, even in the, you know, the idea that someone might have uh, 20 years in the same job in the same employer um, seems slightly incredible now. Even in the library world, uh, we've seen a lot more short-term contracts. You know, people employed for a project for a year or two years. Uh, people, uh, well, e even being able to train. You know, I I had a grant to go to university and then another grant to do my library diploma. Uh, I don't think the funding for those is is anything like as easy now. So th the whole world is a lot more challenging. Um, um, so I'm not sure what I can say. I, I guess good luck um, <laughs> is the thing. I, I can say, um, yeah, you're working in a small. So I've always worked in small libraries, and I've enjoyed that because uh, you, you do see a, a wide range of things, and you're you're more connected to the organisation perhaps than you might be uh, in a in a larger library setup. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I've valued that, but it does mean you. you know, I, I've always pushed out to colleagues in other places, so networking, attending events, uh, and in the last. Um, 10 to 15 years all of the social media stuff you know, engaging on twitter and and um through blogs um so you 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 need to reach out to colleagues in other places so that's always important um to develop your your network of um, colleagues to support you um and 
Yeah, the other thing I guess I've I'd say that has been one of my strong points is um, is to get out of my box. So I'm I'm a librarian. I could just stay in my library box and and just do things, but I've always I, I took the chance to explore the internet a bit more and set up the the institute website way back, and to to do work with uh, producing the institute's annual report. I I. I, I devised and managed the production of a book on the history of NIMR. Uh, so I've, I've looked a little bit into biological sequences and tried to dabble in the research data, but I kind of pulled back from that because the complexity is so much. But So I think you know, identifying new opportunities that you can contribute to, or, or just if you're lucky like I was and, and you've got the scope within the job to do some interesting things, you know, do a little bit of uh, exploration outside of your immediate field, then then do that, and it, you know, very often it will it will pay dividends. Yeah, and so on a more personal note, what do you think has been a, a challenge uh, that was the most difficult for you to overcome? Um, uh, I'm trying to. Th think which one is this um i is, is this the question about the change yes so yes. what kind of change was yes. most difficult for you to make yeah um so in in terms of work i think uh, the moving from nmr to the crick was very challenging uh i sort of hinted earlier that librarians don't always have high strategic importance to an organization and so sorting out library arrangements at the crick wasn't the first thing that was dwelt on so we had to wait quite a while before uh, no, plans were made for that but also uh, at mill hill we had a, a massive historical collection we'd been there um, the, or the library here existed since 1920 and had kept vast amounts of material so i had to dispose of almost everything in the physical library uh, the archives we we were able to find a home for most of that uh, a few books and journals went to other libraries and we did transfer a small amount which is formed the basis of our historical collection at the crick but um, we had about three kilometers of shelving and and nearly all of that had to be disposed of so that was uh, that felt no, very difficult, painful. Yes, I, I got over it, but um, it, it it seemed like a, a lost opportunity. But the the thing is, we had lots of old material, but it's not what what historians or library special collections librarians call old. It wasn't. You no, know, it's nineteenth century at the oldest. It wasn't sixteenth you know, century incunabula or or rare books where there's only three copies in the world. There were. No, there are plenty of copies of these things around, but it was, it was the value of it was the collection, all of the yeah. disparate things together. But that wasn't sufficient value um, for it to, you know, say the welcome collection uh, would have been the obvious place to to put it. But no, they will have had most of what we what we had there, so they did take quite a bit of stuff, but um, much of it just you no, know, they they didn't need it. Mm hmm. And so along the painful part, what do you think is uh, a pain that you are you are willing to share that you think has shaped mm. you the most? Well, uh, I'd say the death of my mother 
Uh, ironically, this came just a few months after we got the funding for that project that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a bittersweet time. Um, so she was 80. Um, and at that time, you know, I was a single man. Uh, I felt really alone. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that made me realize that I needed to sort myself out. Um, <clears throat> and that was when I, so I, I had, had support from work. Um, uh, uh, th there was a welfare officer and, and she gave me a lot of support through that year or two. And then I, mm -hmm. I uh, started seeing a psychotherapist and over a period of time helped me to <clears throat> understand my feelings, my emotions. Uh, and, he, and, and through all of those discussions, you know, they don't, the therapist doesn't tell you what to think. You have to say it yourself. You have to realize it yourself and utter it. Um, and, but he, he helped me to to realize that uh, I was a gay man and that I could I could cope with being a gay man and um, and that you know transformed my life. And can I ask how old were you at that time, if you if I may? Yeah. Um, so I was forty three when when I I got to that point of of realizing that that's what I mm. uh, uh, how I needed to live my life. That is very brave to actually take up that challenge and and actually look deep inside yourself. I've or or it was a necessity. <laughs> well, I think yeah, I think both. And I guess it was brave. It was, um, it was very hard. And to begin with, I you know I just I couldn't see the way through. There wasn't. I, I couldn't have done it on my own. Mm -hmm. um, but but it was a necessity. I, you know, when my mother died, it, you know. It, uh, I, I I realized I had to sort something out. I couldn't just. I'd sort of approached my my non-existent love life uh, in the same way as my career of just kind of waiting for the next thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And but that wasn't going to work. Now I needed to do something more more strongly to plan my the rest of my emotional life. Mm. And so, being a trainee psychotherapist, mm. I am actually curious. Um, how difficult was it for you to find the person to work with and uh, how difficult was it for you to actually even ask for help? Because that was quite some years ago when, when therapy was not something that's very popular. Well, so as I said, the, the welfare officer at, at uh -huh. NIMR, um, so she was a trained therapist as well. So um, uh, I had some talks with her and she she gave me that the the British Association of Psychotherapists yeah. uh, had a handbook. I think it's online now, but she she sent me some of the pages for the uh, therapists in the North London, and uh, I went through there looking at what they what they offered and uh, and chose chose a few. And the the first one that I uh, made contact with, um, uh, you know, we we got on well. He was local. Um, and that it just worked out. We, you know, we had a, mm -hmm. uh, but it was so, so finding somebody, I was lucky, I guess, partly, um, but, uh, also having the, you know, the tip off to, to go for a BAP, uh, member therapist rather than just choosing somebody out of the phone book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I had that quality assurance that this was going to be a proper professional person. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, um, 
but then the the whole process yeah it was it was all very new and yeah. uh, i think we had a lot of kind of uh jostling to begin with and yeah. you know not quite understanding from on from my part how it would all work um and so, so what was, do you think what do you think was uh, what do you think was the thing that kept you what that kept the belief that 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 can actually be helpful even though you might have not understood it in the beginning well i i, I just think i needed uh i didn't have any other ideas i suppose so okay. I, i kept with it i'm not you know sometimes there was a a week when you know we, we didn't really get anywhere but every now and again we there'd be some breakthrough mm -hmm. um i would say something uh and and suddenly realize that i'd articulated some truth that i hadn't known before and that that would sort of have a i'd be like this i'd suddenly feel emotional that oh i'd said, said something that i didn't know was true mm. and so that th those little advances helped to make me realize that this was doing something that uh, i couldn't do by myself Hmm. Wow. And uh, I'm curious because then one of the question is who are the people who impacted you and shaped the way you are hmm. today? So, so well, is the I've, therapist one of them? <laughs> yeah, the, the welfare officer and the therapist are, are, are two of them. Uh, but also my, my boss at NIMR from 1989 to 99 as Bob Moore. <clears throat> so he was he was the, the chief librarian. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, so so he he appointed me he gave me the job um he gave me the space to do interesting work and to pursue interesting mm -hmm. avenues um so that you know he 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 kept things going i i contributed you know i had regular work to do the things i had to get done but there was always space to do interesting things and and look at maybe new new areas and he also you know at the opposite end of the scale from the internet and all the technical stuff he gave me an understanding about the history of science mm. um, and the joy of of historical archives and historical book collections that you know so i i sort of i became a broader uh, librarian because of that not not just mm. the technical side but understanding um you know, historical materials too and uh, i'm also curious uh about uh so you said 43 uh, and discovering uh, that mm. you were a gay man 20 years ago and i recently <laughs> read the book the velvet rage uh, i don't know if you have heard of I it, don't know it. Uh, it's written by a psychotherapist but who has specifically worked with um homosexual populations mm. and uh, uh and specifically male uh and so i um I really empathize with the amount of shame sometimes that comes with that realization. And also culturally, 20 years ago, uh, I guess the UK was a very different place. So what do you think? Uh, do you th how do you think that that has changed now? And how do you think that the, the cultural moment in time has shaped the way you have been then? Well, I'd say um 40 years ago culturally it was very different and mm -hmm. uh, it it would have been a lot harder um mm -hmm. uh, uh, coming out as gay 40 years ago 20 years ago i think um you know we 
so we, we'd had a few years of, of the Labour government and they'd started enacting mm -hmm. um, more more liberal legislation on, on homosexuality and um, age of consent and adoption and all the rest of it. So I, mm -hmm. I'd say that it, I, I didn't really have any any worries about it then. Um, well, I, yeah, to begin with, you know, the first time you tell somebody else and, and the second time and the 300th time, it, but I guess by the 300th time you tell somebody else, You've you've got enough positive experiences of coming out that no, nothing bad happens that it it, it does get easier. Mm -hmm. um, so I I don't think it was a big problem with me twenty years ago. And in terms of shame, I think I think by that time I'd sort of I I didn't have the shame. I had the huge regret that I'd kind of missed out on you know, twenty years of of life um, uh, as an emotional person. Um, so uh, there was sort of a, a sense of grief for mm -hmm. what might have been, but um, I, I got over that. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the joy of being myself um, got got me through all of that. Mm. And uh, do you feel like you are still facing challenges uh, around that topic, or you feel like at the, the at the, this moment of time you can fully <laughs> express who you are? Uh, well, living in London, North London. Um, it's things are relatively straightforward, but the, the, there's always challenges. Um, you know, there are <coughs> there are still people, um, or, or you know, particular communities, where you're not quite sure what what they'll say. Um, mm -hmm. I've you know, I've been very lucky. I've not had negative experiences of that sort. Or mm -hmm. um, occasionally, on a late night bus, somebody would say something, but. Um, uh, I guess um, the, you, know, you may see something on the news or or hear about some some edict from some religious organisation, which uh, um, is upsetting, but uh, not 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 personally, not yeah. no not directly confronting me personally. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm very lucky where I live and and the time in which I live. Mm. And so I also want to come back to the choir and the singing, mm. which I was very curious about, again, as someone who really loves singing. And so how did that come into your life? And uh, and yeah, how did all of that come to be? What, what does that do for you? Um, well, it came about, I guess my, 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 my parents loved music and my, my brothers and sisters loved music music and so there was music always at home um we did some uh, early years at school uh my voice broke a bit early and i i stopped singing for a bit and then i joined a local church choir um but really i think it took off when i went to university uh, in bristol i i went along to the catholic cathedral clifton cathedral which is a, a beautiful modern building um and I was able to join their choir, so it's, it's an adult choir, not a you know, not a, a, a professional choir, but an adult volunteer choir. And I don't know that I really contributed very much in the first couple of years, but um, through that, uh, I was we we practiced twice a week. So there's new music for the service on Sunday every week. So you're forever being confronted with new music to learn. And somehow through that, uh, I, I 
I picked up the, the skill to, to sight read music, um, to sing at sight, and, and I acquired a, a knowledge of a, a great repertoire of, of church music. Um, and that really was the foundation um, and that's lasted me very well. So I, I went on to singing in other church choirs and I sang in big choirs too. Um, at the moment, I sing with a, a large choir in North London, mm-hmm. which rehearses very close to me. And uh, um, what, what he said also, what do I get out of it? Uh, well, um, there is some some pleasure just in in hearing your own voice and being part of a, I think particularly for a large choir, being part of a a, a greater whole. You know, you, you, you're together, a bit like we we're talking with team science, we're achieving something together that we couldn't achieve individually. And performing with an orchestra uh, is a, a magical experience, just it's an overwhelming mm-hmm. sound. Um, and yeah, uh, 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 and cert- certain pieces of music um, you know, just have an overwhelming emotional impact as well. Um, so all, all the years that I wasn't experiencing, experiencing uh, uh, human love or any of the, that, because I was kind of isolated from people, my, my main um, <coughs> output for all of that emotion, high emotion, was, was through music. Mm. So that, that, I think that served me well. And so what, what kind of music touches you the most or? Um, well, sometimes it's the music and sometimes it's the memories that it evokes. Mm. Um, so uh, no, high romantic music. So like Mahler, uh, Bruckner. Um, <clears throat> but also, uh, you know, the, the closing of... Uh, the, Uh, uh, the Arnia's Day in Bach's B minor Mass, I find very moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just through have, having heard or sung it at a particular time when um, I think that was after my father died. So that sort of created a, an association which still moves me. Mm. Um, but yeah, all sorts of things are uh, um, more... Uh, I'm, I'm obviously great beauty in the musical melody or in the harmony um, and sometimes just really loud music. <laughs> I love percussion or you know, the Albert, Royal Albert Hall organ when they oh, yes. uh, so huge, huge volumes of noise can be very moving as well. That's mm-hmm. That seems a very uh, unsophisticated thing to say, but uh, uh, it's true. Hmm. So to wrap up, just the two last questions. Uh, what kind of compliments do you like to receive? Yeah, I don't have any great insights here. I, I just think anything genuine. Uh, mm-hmm. If 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 the compliment is just somebody being nice or um, polite or or coming up with a a cliched compliment, uh, it doesn't do anything. But if 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 I feel that it's a real genuine compliment then I'm pleased to receive it Hmm. and what are some things that you have that have become more and some things that have become less important as you have gotten older more important my pension (laughs) Uh, so you know this was critical in in the move from 
um, the Medical Research Council Institute through the Crick. Uh, so, you know, having you know, 25 years of, of, of pension in, with the MRC, uh, I was very concerned, <laughs> and, that, and that was a very good pension scheme. I was very concerned that uh, I was, uh, I'd be able to transfer that across, and that has been the case. So that, that was very important for me. Um, makes me seem a bit mercenary, but it's uh, um, less important. I think what people think of me, uh, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not completely impervious to what people think of me, but uh, uh, it's, it's, it's nice if people think well of you or, or like you or whatever, but, but uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I like to think I, I'm less affected by that and um, yeah, I'm prepared to say something which is perhaps unpopular uh, or something that needs to be said. Um, I, I don't, I don't worry. And you know, in terms of um, being gay and, and mentioning that, I, I, I don't have concerns around that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, with this, I would like uh, to thank you for for really taking your time, for your openness, for actually saying important things that maybe not many people are, are ready to say about scientific publishing, and uh, just your genuine nature. So, yeah, thank you very okay. much. <laughs> okay, thank you, Alex. It's been a, a great conversation. You have just heard the story of Frank Norman, the head of library services at the Francis Crick Institute. Frank has over 35 years of experience in biomedical library and information work, including 25 years running the library and information services at NIMR Mill Hill. He has been an active member of the committees of the Chill and Raskoling Library Groups and is now a member of the UKCG Education Subcommittee and the BioArchive Advisory Group. He takes a strong interest in open science and scholarly communication and the interplay with science communication and social media. If you want to connect with him, you can find him on Twitter at Frank Norman. Thank you for joining me on this journey. And if you like what you hear, please share and subscribe so that our stories can be